welcome to another inspirational message from Brave Church UK. And uh, we're in the process as a church uh, of journeying through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I was talking to someone in the coffee house after service uh, last week, a couple of people, and we were joking saying that we'll probably be finishing up Ephesians in 2021 at the rate that we are going. And uh, we're in uh, just towards the end of the second chapter uh, this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open up it there. Off, off, also, awful, awful. Also, if you've got uh, a mobile device, a smartphone, iPhone, anything like that, you can get the Version app, which is the Bible app on your phone, and you can access our sermon notes through there. If that, none of that makes any sense to you, but you're interested in finding out more, then go to reception afterwards. Someone will show you how that you can do that and access our notes. And uh, so Ephesians chapter 2, we're looking at this morning. And... Um, uh, and really the theme of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 2 is, is Paul, the writer of this letter, he's letting us in on a, on a mystery. And there's three parts to this mystery. It's the mystery of God's church. And, uh, and I love uh, God's church. Anybody else? Yeah. I love God's church. I, I love um, that we gather together in a community like this and are committed to one another. I love that it's not um, God's plan B, it's, plan, it's God's plan A. It is his plan, uh, but yet it's mysterious. Okay, look at the person next to you if you're in doubt of that. Look at it. It's mysterious. <laughs> it is mysterious. And uh, I, I don't know about you. I love um, watching murder mysteries. Anybody else? Yeah. I love it. Uh, I grew up on Columbo. <laughs> I'm just trying to be culturally relevant to the older crowd in here this morning. Columbo. And uh, what about Agatha, Agatha Christie? Yeah. Remember, yep, three of you are interested in Agatha Christie and uh, murder mysteries. More recently, um, I like the updated Sherlock. Anybody else? Or Luther. A little bit too dark for some people. And uh, I love murder mysteries. I love um, when you're watching a murder mystery, that literally something will go wrong, someone will be murdered, and, uh, and literally a detective will show up on the scene trying to figure out the mystery. And I know that like you, um, we all sit on the edge of our seats when it's a good murder mystery, and we try and figure out who it is, who did it, who's the murderer, what went wrong, and all of that. And we'll sit there over the course of a few weeks watching a series, and we'll literally guess that everyone has done it. Yeah? Well, they did it. No, they did it. No, they did it. And, it, and our minds change week upon week. They did it. And then when the final moment comes, when they say, uh, actually, it's this person, da, 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 and the person that's done it, it is made known. The mystery is made known. You'll say to your, to your spouse, to the person you're watching it with, I told you. It was them. Like you told them it was everyone, but you t I told you, I knew. I knew it was them. We love it, don't we? There are some mysteries in life that, uh, that are still unsolved. Jack the Ripper. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. We don't know who he was. At the city of Atlantis. Did it exist? Did it not? For you Bible nerds, is it Eden? Is it Eden? I don't know. It's a mystery. Stonehenge, we know when it was built, we don't know why it was built. It's a mystery, aliens. <laughs> aliens, we'll get a chance to pray after service, don't we? Stonehenge, Manchester United's popularity. It's, I don't know, it's just a mystery. It's, it's a mystery. Women, they're, they're a mystery. They are a mystery. 
I've got one mum, three sisters, one wife, you'll be pleased to know, just one. And one daughter. And still, women are a mystery to me. They're a mystery. We want to be equal. Okay, let's be equal. No, that's your job. What? I thought you wanted to be equal. It's a mystery. And women would say of men, men, you are a mystery. You are a mystery. You want to be loved, but you're too distant. You are a mystery. And Paul, as he writes um, Ephesians to us, and he opens up the, the second chapter of Ephesians, he's letting us into behind the curtain of a mystery, his church. That it's mysterious. And somehow, if we try and grapple with it and understand it on our own, it remains a mystery. But what Paul begins to tell us is this mystery becomes made known to us through Christ. And there are three things that Paul talks about that I want to just kind of whiz through this morning. That as he, as he makes these known to us, that we could better understand his church. Number one is this, if you're taking notes and you're not following on, on, on the Version app. Number one is this, it's the mystery that God brings us near to him. God brings us near to him. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Listen to this. He says, without Christ, you are without hope and without God in the world. I love this verse, verse 13. But now. Everyone say, but now. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, those of you who were far away have been brought near not by your own effort, not by your own intellect or intelligence. Paul says it's by the blood of Christ that each and every one of us. He starts off that, that little portion of scripture by saying this. He says, remember. He says, cast your minds back to, to before you knew who God was and who, who Christ was. Think back then. Think about how you were distant, how you were separate. How, how you were excluded from God's plan. Sometimes it's good, isn't it, to just cast your mind back and think of what you were before you met God. I think regularly, and, and, and I know that this is true of you as well, I think I'm not who I want to be, but I'm so glad I'm not who I was, who I were, if you're from Aussie, who I were. I'm so glad that God took us from where we were and he's journeying us on to where he wants us to be. He says, remember. Remember that without Christ, you were nothing. Here's a key question in your notes. What does it mean to be without Christ? What does it mean to be without relationship with Jesus? Here's what it means. It means to be without spiritual blessings. It means to be without light. It means to be without peace. It means to be without rest. It means to be without safety. It means to be without hope. It means to be without a prophet, a priest, or a king. And what Paul's trying to get the Gentiles to understand is, is before and without Christ, you are nothing. 
And he's painting this picture that actually in Christ now, you have everything. And he says this, he says two things. He says, without Christ, you had no hope. Can you remember what it was like to have no hope? No hope that, that your, your days could get better. No hope that you had a future. No hope that God had a plan laid out for you. And it includes not just this life, but eternity when you breathe your last breath. To have hope. To know Christ is to have hope. To have assurance that, that actually I know him. He's at work in me. And I have a hope and a trust that when I breathe my last breath, when this life comes to its end, that I'll still be with him. Not separate from him, with him. That's a great hope, isn't it? Especially as you approach the end with loved ones and people in your life. To have a hope in those last moments means everything, doesn't it? To have a hope. He says that not only now with Christ do you have hope, but you have God with you in this world. Think about that. God's by your side. God's helping you out. God's walking with you. God's leading the way. God's strengthening you. God's encouraging you. That is a good place to say, thank you, Jesus. He's with me in this world. I don't know about you, but I don't know. Uh, I cast my mind back to before I knew Jesus. I don't know how I got through seasons and stuff. I don't know people, uh, how people journey through life without the assurance that God's with them. That actually I know that, that in my struggles and in, my, in, in the seasons that are just too dark for you to get through and navigate on your own, God carries you through those seasons. He doesn't just get you through, He carries you through. And Paul says this is the hope that, that, that not only is it futuristic, that, that they have an eternity with God, but this is a hope as well, that He's with you right now in this world. For some of you, that's the encouragement you need today. To know that whatever you're going through, whatever struggle, whatever fight, whatever battle you're dealing with, God is by your side. He's with you. That's what Paul says. He's our hope and he's the God with us in this world. Psalm 103 says this. I love this psalm. It says, praise the Lord, my soul, all my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, all my soul. And this, listen to this. And forget not all his benefits. I think Paul's alluding to that in, in Ephesians chapter 2. He's saying, remember what you were before Christ because it's so easy once you're journeying with Christ to forget the benefits that you have in knowing Christ. Especially as we live with the complexity of the lives that we live, with all the anxieties and struggles and all kinds of stuff that, and the obsessions that we have in terms of living out our days. He says, forget not his benefits. Well, what are his benefits? He goes on, he says this. He says, he forgives all your sins. Anyone need forgiveness? I do. He forgives all your sins. Some of you don't, so I don't know what you're doing here today. Maybe find a perfect church down the street. I don't know. He forgives all your sins. Listen to this. He heals all your diseases. He's dealt with the sickness of sin. Healed you. That's a pretty impressive benefit, don't you think? If this was a job interview and we were sitting down and I was telling you the staff benefits, you'd be interested right now. You, you can have forgiveness for your sins. Anything you've ever done wrong and everything you will do, do, do wrong. Forgiven through Jesus Christ. 
healed by him. He goes on, he goes further. He says he redeems your life from the pit. Think about that. That before you knew Christ, you were in a pit. A desperate state. And he redeemed you, he pulled you out. Listen to this, I love this one. He crowns you with love and compassion. I don't know about, I don't know about your um, natural disposition, but without God, I'm an angry little man. I'm, a, I'm just an angry little man. But somehow when God gets involved in your life, he gives you a love and a compassion for other people. That's amazing, isn't it? This is what he does in you. Listen to this. He satisfies your desires. This is the important part. With good things. You can spend your life trying to satisfy your desires with the wrong things. But when you come into relationship with God through Christ, it says he satisfies your desires with good things. In other words, the good things are the kind of things you can wake up the morning after and not feel any dread or regret for what you did the day before. That's to be satisfied with a good thing. Satisfies your desires with good things. And then it says this, so that your youth will be renewed like the eagles. Like literally there's, there's a renewing power that comes from knowing God. That he energizes you from the inside out and gives you a passion and a hunger. So Paul says, he says, remember what you were before you met Christ. Because now with Christ, this is the life you have. The abundant life. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far away. I'm so glad at 17 years old that I said yes to Jesus. That before that, I was far away from God. And in a moment in a church service similar to this, at 17 years old, messed up, broken, dysfunctional, made a mess of my life, came before God and said, God, I need you. I believe in you. I'm so glad that in that moment this took place. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away. You might have described yourself this morning as you walk through the doors of this church as far away from God. Today, you can know his grace. Today, you can know his love. And you can be brought near. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through what he's done. Think about this, that the gift of marriage, when you marry someone, when you commit your life to them, what are you really doing? I think one of the things you're doing in marriage is, is that you are giving another individual, another person, the gift of nearness. You are saying to that person, I am allowing you to come near. To see all my failings, to see all my faults, to see me in my, at my best and to see me at my worst. It's the gift of nearness. It's an amazing gift. When I think about my, my marriage, I think the, the, the times that my marriage is at its best is when there's a nearness, a closeness. I know that there's at times when my marriage is at its worst, there's distance. True? There's distance. To be married is to give someone else the gift of nearness. In the New Testament, Paul and, and, and the other writers often speak of the church as the bride of Christ. And Jesus as, as the groom. And the, the, the gift that Jesus has given his church is the gift of nearness. 
It's to come near. It's to benefit from his presence. It's to know he's leading. It's to not have any distance in between based on your failings and your faults, but to be near to him. And Paul says this is a mystery that you've got to understand that God knew you before and he chose you anyway and he allows you the gift of coming near to him. So I don't know what your perception of God is, whether you think he's real or not, whether you think you're worthy of relationship with him or not. But Paul makes it clear through what Christ has done on the cross, the shedding of his blood, that he now draws us near when we respond to him and when we give him our lives and our everything. Number two, the second mystery is this. God brings us near, number one. God brings us together. God brings us together. It says this in, in verse 14 of the second chapter. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul says this, he says that, that each and every one of us now has access to, to the peace of God. There's, there's two applications to that. One is that you can be at peace with God. And the second aspect to it is now that you are at peace with one another. That literally we would be at peace with God and that we would be at peace with one another. You see, Paul, as he writes the book of Ephesians, he knows that he's, two, he's speaking to two groups of people within the church. There are those who have grown up with, a, with kind of a Jewish heritage. They're, a Jew, they're Jews by birth. And they've come into a knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who forgives uh, the debt of sin and the fullness of who he is. But there's another group of people. There, there are Gentiles, literally non-Jews. They're those who, who, who haven't, experienced this creator God or understood him in the same way but they've now received and accepted the message of Jesus and so in the church would you believe it there's conflict I know that you never believe this of a church but there's conflict in the church there's the Jews who have known God for, for the God of ages and there's the Gentiles who are new to this thing and trying to figure it out and Paul writes to them and he wants them to know, actually God has brought you together. There is no division in between you. You are one in him. Crazy, isn't it? Even in his text, he talks about the wall of separation. He says that prior to Jesus, there was a wall of separation. Literally, as Paul is writing this, he's thinking of a wall that was in the synagogue that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. But literally, when they came together to worship, there would, be, there would be a place that only the Jews could go to, to worship God. And there was a wall of, of separation around them between Jew and Gentile. The, the Gentile couldn't enter the same way 
that a Jew entered. They entered a different way. Crazy, isn't it? In fact, Paul, for, for you Bible nerds who, who like this kind of stuff, but Paul, as he writes the book of Ephesians, is in a Roman jail, a Roman prison. Anyone know why he was in prison? He was in prison. I'll take that as a no. <laughs> this morning. Uh, he, he was in prison because he was accused of taking a Greek, a Gentile, into the place in the temple where only the Jews could go. He's in prison because of a wall of separation. Now, he didn't do it, but he was accused of it. And then he writes, imprisoned, on his way to his execution. He writes to the Ephesians and he says, Now, in Christ, there is no wall of separation. The division you've made, and he says this, he says, Christ dealt with the, the, the obstacle. What was the obstacle? The law. The law was God's gift to the Jews to make them distinct and, and separate and set apart. And, and the Jews thought they were a cut above because they lived a different way to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles just thought the Jews were weird because they lived a different way to the Gentiles. And, and there's, this, there's these two factions in the life of the early church. And here's what Paul says, the wall's gone. All access to everyone. There's, there's not a hierarchy in this church, in the church of the New Testament. There's not a separation between you who, oh, you were bought, brought up in a good Christian family and you were a ragtag like, well, who knows what you did and then you came to Jesus. There's no separation. There's no separation is what Paul says. There, there's no division. He says this, he says that no matter what race you are, no matter what political persuasion you are, no matter what language you speak, no matter what culture you were brought up in, no matter what economic situation you find yourselves in, there is nothing that could, should and could separate you now as believers in Christ Jesus. Because he says this, you were brought together. You were brought together. He says that, that literally your, your commonality of, of the name and relationship with Jesus is far bigger than any difference you brought in. And so he says to Jew and to Gentile, whatever you were carrying, whatever hang-ups you had, whatever thought, you know, maybe you look around the church this morning and think, man, they're a little bit different to me. They're a little bit different. Oh, they were brought up different to me. They think different to me. I don't know whether I fit in as I should. What Paul says is, no, this one thing the church has in common, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And he says, we center our lives not on our difference, but on him. He even goes one step further. And he says, as people who are different now, who've accepted the message of Jesus, you are one. And he says, he uses this language, you are a new humanity. You're a new humanity. In other words, you've been factioned and built and brought together to form a new humanity. That's the beauty of the church. Different creed, different backgrounds, different, different ideologies, different ways of living, different family experiences, different financial position, all come together and unite around the name of Jesus. 
So as we, as we sung this morning, we were uniting around the name of Jesus. We have commonality. So you might think, well, we're different. Yeah, we are. But we have Jesus in common. Jesus says, uh, prays this prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 11, just in case you think this isn't a big deal. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, meaning his disciples. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. What's the thing that unites us as one? It's by the power of your name. The name that you gave me. What was his name? Jesus. He prays for the church and says, let them be one in me. What I love um, as a church, some of you might know this, is that we're involved in the work of compassion in Rwanda. And I think we sponsor over 100 kids now, which is phenomenal um, in the life of the church. And, and uh, over three or four different projects in Rwanda. And one of the amazing things that we do as a church is we're able to go to Rwanda to meet the kids that we sponsor. And we pay money that literally provides health and education and, and a hope and a future for the family as well. Just an amazing work. And, and one of the things I love about uh, going to Rwanda is you'll sit in their church, in their expression of worship, in their own tongue. You, can't, you don't understand it, but it doesn't feel foreign. When you sat in the church and they're singing and they're dancing and, and they're rejoicing and they're worshipping, you can't help but join in. Because though we might be, be separated by time and space, in Jesus, we're one. We, we're family. We have a common cause, the name of Jesus. So God brings us near to him. Then God brings us together. That's a mystery. That God would bring us together. Such a diverse group of people together. Different ages together. And then here's what he does as well. He builds us together. He doesn't just bring us together. But he builds us together. Last one. Verse 19. He says this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. But fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household. I don't know what your family upbringing was like whether you had a good experience or bad experience, whether you either knew your, your birth family or not. Here's what Paul says. When you accept who Jesus is, you are built, grafted into the church who become your family, who are your family. This is what I love about the church, that no matter where your status, married, single, divorced, whatever your status is, when you gather together with the church, we're one family. Together. He says you, you, are, you are fellow citizens of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as, in, as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. This is what he says to the Ephesians and to us. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Sounds mysterious, doesn't it? That you're brought together and built. 
that you're grafted into his family. And now he wants to build us together and dwell in us by his spirit. He says, you're built on the foundation. What does he mean, the foundation? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, he doesn't necessarily mean that the work that, that he and his fellow apostles and the prophets of the New Testament have, have put in. The foundation that they've laid is this, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. It's not only the foundation, but Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. If you don't believe me, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. This is the same writer to the Ephesians. He says this. He says, by the grace of God, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each of you should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. It's not the gifts of the apostles and prophets. Their role was significant, but they are to lay the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, not only is Jesus Christ the foundation of this thing, he's the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is literally the stone that holds the building together. Think about that. When we, when we, when we move Jesus, the whole thing falls apart. When we, when we take our eyes off him, you know this in your own life. Listen, when I take my eyes off Jesus, everything falls apart. Because I'm built in him now. The foundation of him. And he's the cornerstone. Not just of your own individual life. But of our lives together as the church. I've heard people say over the years, and I know you have too. The church is not a building. It's not a building. Actually, according to Paul, it is. He says that I'm constructing something. That it has an architect and a design. It's not just a random group of stones that's chucked together. But the architect is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus involved in the building process. It is a building. It's not a building in, in terms of our literal natural sense. But it's a building. It's individuals built together. In other words, you can't have church on your own. That's what Paul says. Because you're built together. What are the other bricks? What are the other stones? Other people. Other people. And he says this, he says, I'm building you, God's building this house, his church, together with others. That, that one brick alongside another brick. And here's the, here's the beautiful thing about this, that Paul's painting this picture of this amazing temple God's building, his church. We see images of it in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, uh, in, in, in the wilderness. And you see it in Solomon's temple. Images of what the church will be. Not a physical construct, but people's lives built together. And, and he's talking to a church in Ephesus. And the city in Ephesus, we've talked about this over the past few weeks, is built around another temple, the temple of Artemis. And what Paul's saying is, is the idolatry that takes place there isn't the, isn't the real deal. That the real temple that God's building is his church. It's people up against each other being built into this thing. Mole, the commentator, says this. He says, and the everlasting father will perfectly reveal himself to all the watchers of all the regions of the eternal world. Not anyhow, but by this, in his glorified church in the race the nature 
once wrecked and ruined, but rebuilt into this splendor by his grace. I love what Adam Clark says about the church. He explains the church like this. He says, there is nothing, band if you want to come, we're going to get ready to finish in just a moment. There is nothing as noble as the church, seeing that it is the temple of God. There is nothing so worthy of reverence, seeing that God dwells in it. There is nothing so ancient, since the patriarchs and prophets worked to building it. And there is nothing so solid, since Jesus Christ is the foundation of it. There is nothing so high, since it reaches as high as to the heavens in Christ Jesus. There is nothing so perfect and well-proportioned since the Holy Spirit is the architect. There is nothing more beautiful because it is adorned with building stones of every age, every place, every people, from the highest kings to the lowest peasants, with the most brilliant scientists and the simplest believers. There is nothing more spacious since it spread over the whole earth and takes in all who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there is nothing so divine since it is a living building, animated and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful, isn't it? That's the church. We're the church. Built together. But here's what I know. It sounds, as you read the text, as you think about the church and precious stones and all the language, it sounds very picturesque, doesn't it? It sounds very beautiful. And yet, I know this. I'm not much of a builder, but I know this. The building's messy. I know that before you get to the finished product, there's a lot of dirt that has to be dug up. There's a foundation that has to be laid. Even when you're putting bricks together, it's messy. It's a dirty place. There's not many building sites I've been on that have been pristine and clean. And yet sometimes when we approach the church, we feel like we shouldn't expect mess and dirt. The church is a building site and expect to get messy. When you're being built, your life's being built into someone else's, don't be surprised if their dirt gets on you. Don't be surprised if you get offended. Don't be surprised if you get let down. Don't be surprised if you get hurt. Because we're all people being built by God and we're not there yet. But here's the commitment that, that we have and Paul's encouraging us to have. Don't run away when things get tough. I know, mate, we could have a queue after church and, and talk about how people have been let down by the church, burnt, hurt. Hey, we've, we've all been there. We've all been hurt by people, but here's the truth as well. We've all hurt people. And sometimes we remember the times people have hurt us, but we don't remember the times that we've hurt others. But here's what Paul says. Here's the mystery. That in the midst of the mess and the dirt and the filth of church being built, God wants to build us together and then somehow mysteriously inhabit us with His Holy Spirit and unite us. People who are far from God and far from each other, united in Christ. That is a miracle. That's the church. And that's God's method and God's mode of reaching this world. 
that's the end of this week's podcast. We hope that it inspired you. For any more information, visit bravechurch.co.uk.